I would like you to join me in prayer for the people of Afghanistan and for some people close by um, another church body with a, a major struggle this morning. So um, first let us pray for Afghanistan and then I'll pray for that church body. Uh, Father, uh, we intercede this morning for the faithful that are in Christ who are in Afghanistan. This morning, uh, they need your physical protection. They're those who are being abused, displaced, and are even facing death this week. For those who are desiring to flee the country, I pray that, I pray that you would provide financially uh, for visas and access to money for them to return home. May you fill the believers with joy and peace and believing and the Holy Spirit abound in them that they would remain faithful in the hope of Jesus in this horrible trial. We pray, Lord, that the, the word of the Lord would speed forward with great impact in that region as well. We ask, Lord, that those who persecute and oppress would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in this time. And Lord, I, I do lift up uh, my friend uh, Josh and the congregation that he so faithfully serves. I just pray for unity in that body. I pray for super strong conviction in Josh that he is called the view. He is called the preacher word and shepherd your people. And I pray that he would not falter in this time. Give him and his family great encouragement, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we find ourselves in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, because we finished John, chapter 8. So uh, that is our normal mode, is to uh, go through the Scripture a book at a time. And uh, so this morning we find ourselves in John chapter 9. We're going to ask first for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears uh, to the text. We'll then read the whole passage and then divide the word, making observations and applications along the way. I know this morning I plan to preach through the whole chapter, which is a lot of verses. So we will take more of a, a, a high view uh, of this passage. And so let us uh, first uh, pray. We ask God, the Holy Spirit, to give us the grace we need, Lord, for you to act upon us in the grace of the Father that we would have eyes to see Jesus clearly this morning. We're dependent upon grace to show us our own spiritual blindness, Lord, and to illuminate us to renewed repentance and restored faith. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit speaks to us in your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning's message is entitled, Let There Be Sight. Let us read chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then, How were your eyes opened? He said, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that our son, uh, that this is our son and that he was born blind, but uh, how he sees, we do not know, uh, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And he said, it is I who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who, who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is God's word for us this morning.
I want to begin with this thought. I want us to think about this throughout the passage, and that is the glory of God. What is God? I posed this question to my kids at dinner this week. I got kind of like a little bit of a blank stare, but I'm going to pose it to you, and I I hope I don't get that same blank stare. What does God enjoy more than anything else? The answer, himself. His glory. God lives for his glory. God's work is to manifest his glory. God created all things for his glory. God judges sinful men for his glory. God saves sinful people for his glory. God sent his son for his glory. God heals for his glory. God gives good gifts to creation for his glory. God withholds good gifts from his creation for his glory. God's wrath is for his glory. God's love is for his glory. If God finds no greater joy than himself and his glory, then what can the chief end of those of humankind be? What what can the chief end of a human being's life be? And where will we find great joy? The Westminster Greater Catechism defines the chief end of man in two ways. First, the chief end, the ultimate goal for humankind is to live for the glory of God. As Romans 11.36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And in addition to the glory of God is the chief end or the chief goal. The glory of God is the chief end of our enjoyment. It is the chief end of human flourishing. As David writes in Psalm 73, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom I have in, whom do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, they shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The joy of God's glory. I think that's what we're all seeking in some ways. We're seeking a joy. We're seeking joy. I think we as Christians, you know, we ought to be the most joyful people on the planet for one. But this joy, where does joy come from? It comes from having the treasure of God's glory as the ultimate goal. And I just know That in my own life, sometimes, when I know I'm astray, it's because I've gloried in other things. I've placed other things as preeminent in my life, not God's glory, not God's praise. When I feel depressed about a horrible, a horribly delivered sermon that I have given, and I go home, and I'm down and depressed about it, The answer is that you wanted glory for yourself, Pastor Jeff. 
And when you didn't get it, you seemed dissatisfied. But if you preach a passage for the glory of God, there, my friend, you will find your joy. A joy that cannot be robbed by anyone. A joy that cannot be robbed by anybody who says, what a horrible sermon that was. It cannot be robbed by, by that. Because the joy comes from knowing that in whatever power I had, I gave glory to God. I gloried in Him. He was worthy of my glory. And there I shall find my joy. So, as we look at our passage this morning, the disciples, they have this desire that they want to be careful not to blame God for the fallen condition of man. And so they assume that human suffering must always be the result of human sin. Let's look at the first three verses again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In the disciples' Jewish mind, right, they would recall the Old Testament passages that that said that the sins of the father are visited upon the sons, even to the third and to the fourth generation. But when Jesus comes on the scene, each person is held accountable for their own sin. Each person stands or falls on their own disobedience to the Lord. Hebrews 8.11 says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. When Jesus comes, it is then that each one is accountable for their own sin. So they're trying here to be very careful not to blame God, And so it has to be that this man was born blind because he was a sinner himself. He had some sin uh, that needed to be dealt with or that his parents sinned causing this man's blindness. And Jesus says, no, no, it is for the glory of God. It is not that his parents sinned, not that this man sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In chapter 16 of John's gospel, Jesus says, in this world, there will be trouble. You see, sin certainly does have consequences, doesn't it? But we live in a fallen world and trouble comes to the just and the unjust, just the same as God's goodness comes to the sinner and to the saint. God's goodness comes to the just and the unjust. The consequences of the fallen world come to the justified and the unjustified just the same. But the point that Jesus makes here is that all things are in the sovereign control and the will of God. And all of those things are for His glory. This man was born blind for this particular moment that God would work in Jesus Christ for this man's salvation and for God's glory. For this moment, God was in control of this moment for His praise and for His glory in the hard stuff. Notice that Jesus says in verse 4, we... Jesus includes the disciples in this work. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. 
We, Jesus includes the disciples in the work. And all that you and I do now as disciples of Jesus Christ is to display the work of God, manifesting the glory of God to the world. And we must do this while it is day, while you're alive, while you are able. Do the work of God to his glory. In difficult circumstances, glorify God. In times of favor, do the work of God to his praise and to his glory. The chief end of your existence, of my existence while upon the earth is in the light of day, in the time that we have, it's really simple. Give glory to God. That is our simple work. Give glory to God. That's our simple work while we have time. Jesus was urgently working to manifest God's glory because his days on earth were few and the darkness of the cross would soon be coming. See, Jesus moved with urgency to proclaim the glory of God, to make his glory manifest. Some people think sometimes that that God is... I don't know how to say this. God is all about saving people as his chief end and as loving people as his, his chief end, that, that we are so wonderful that, that, that God's aim is just, I just want to love all these people and I just want to bring them all in. Well, yes, he does do that, but the aim of God is not that. It is his glory. It is his, that he would be, his glory would be manifest in the earth and in the world. And he does so by saving people. Yes, indeed. He does so by transforming lives. Yes, indeed. But the transforming of the life is not the end goal for God. That might be our end, right? I must be saved and that's the end goal. But God's end is his own glory and his own praise. And praise God that Jesus Christ End, and his aim was to glorify his Father and to accomplish his will. Because without that, where would we be? See, our time here is fleeting. It's a vapor. And we do not know when the darkness of this life will come upon us. So we too must work to God's glory with a sense of urgency. None of us is guaranteed to leave the parking lot today. And so today is a day to glorify God, to bring the light of the gospel to bear on everyone we love, everyone we care about, even the people we don't like that live next to us, maybe. But that is our job, is to, to declare the glory of God, the goodness of God, and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what shows the glory of God. The Christian response to trials then becomes not, why me? But how can my circumstances glorify God in this mess? In this mess that I'm in, how can this glorify God? How is God glorifying himself through this trial? You remember our study from the book of James last year in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, through our trials, the glory of God is manifested in our joy in what God produces in us and through us in the midst of our troubles. 
in the midst of our troubles, God is producing something for His glory. That transformative work that happens in us through those trials, right? The, the, the perseverance, the, the steadfastness. He says, I'm making you perfect and complete. That is to His praise and to His glory, and that ought to be our joy. Can't we find joy in tough circumstances knowing that God is producing something in us? A steadfast faith? And that as each trial comes and each one is endured and my faith grows in Him and God is glorified again and again and again, He is perfecting me, making my faith complete so that I lack nothing. Great joy. And Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, verse 5, I am the light of the world. See, Jesus is saying, the cross is coming. The day is fast approaching. The light that John's gospel speaks of in chapter 1 has come into the world. It is the light of men. The one who said, let there be light, has sent that light in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who said, let there be light, has sent that light in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am that which illuminates the hearts of men. I am that which penetrates the dark world that we live in. How do we respond to the darkness all around us? How do we respond to all these things that are going on across the globe? The light of the gospel the light of Jesus Christ. It says the darkness cannot overcome it in John's gospel in chapter 1. The light has come into the world and the darkness will not overcome it. What will overcome the darkness? It is the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ. The sent one, the light of the world is in the person of Jesus. In verses 6 and 7, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I think it's sort of ironic that he sends him to the place called scent as he is the scent one sending him to the place called scent to heal him, to give him sight. But what's really significant here is the one the sent one, the the light of the world, the one who is the one who said, let there be light, now says, let there be sight. I am the light of the world. Let this man see. And the responses are amazing. The questions and the back and forth. The neighbors, amazed at seeing the blind beggar's transformation, From blindness to illumination, they ask this question in verse 10. So they said, then how were your eyes opened? How were your eyes opened? This is a good question for you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who call themselves Christian. It is a very good question to ask ourselves. How? Could a sinner like you see? How could a sinner like you, they might be asking this 
in a different way. How could a sinner like you atone for his sin such that God would bestow such transforming favor on you? How is it that you now see? How could a sinner... Did you atone for your own sin, brother, that now you can see? Did you somehow repent and do great works and now you can see? Did you sacrifice? Did you perform some mighty work of righteousness and that all of your past transgressions were all now forgiven? How do you now have sight? The blind man's answer is pretty simple. It's simply this. Jesus called me. Jesus gave. I received my sight. Jesus called and he gave of himself. And I see. I received it. I have seen. The man called Jesus, put mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. Do you realize this, brothers and sisters, that when you and I declare the goodness of God and we declare the gospel and we declare this good news and we declare this knowledge of God's word and insight into who he is and what he is, our answer to those neighbors who might say, how do you know that you're saved? How do you, how, how, why you? By grace, I received. It's our answer. I didn't work to get it. This is the goodness of God and his grace to his praise and to his glory. I received. I had not. Now I have. I had nothing in me, and now I've received. I've received my sight. It is all of grace. So I wonder this as we think about application for us and in, in all of this is, has your life been so transformed by the light of Jesus Christ that your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members wonder what happened to you? What happened to you? Where does this newfound wisdom you have come from as you're counseling your unbelieving friends and neighbors? How is it that you, who we know you were quite wretched, how is it that you, who we know were quite wretched, happen to be living in a new way now? Do you testify to some work that you've done that you have now pleased God? Or is it as simple as the blind man says here? Jesus called me. He saved me. All I know is that God gave his son Jesus and the light of the gospel was given to me as a gift from God and I received it. I received it. I am now a child of the light who was once in darkness. I've been given a gift and I received it. So guess what? All glory be to God who sent his son for me. To any of you, any of us, anybody in this room who is called a Christian, who calls themselves a Christian, who says that they are in Christ, this is your testimony. This is your testimony. Glory to God, I have seen the light. 
I have received sight. He opened my eyes. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're just not sure about this whole Christian thing, you might be asking, well, how can I be made to see Jesus in a life-transforming way? How can I be saved? Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 19 when the disciples ask him, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Early, earlier in John's gospel, in chapter 3, you remember he said, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless you are born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, salvation belongs to God alone. God must act. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So if you're sitting here and you say, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing, you still might be asking, how then can I be saved? If God must act, I'm dependent upon His grace and His mercy and His kindness for me. What must I do? Your neighbors and your, your friends who are unbelievers are going to ask this very question. If, if it is impossible for me to be saved, and if it is impossible for me to believe in Jesus without God having acted upon me, is my life futile because God hasn't done so? What must I do? What must I do to be saved? It's an important question. The answer is quite simple. Call on the name of Jesus. Call on the name of Jesus. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here's the thing, I want us to get this, because this is one you got to wrap your heart around and your head around, and you've got to answer this question uh, for your unbelieving friends and neighbors and family members. If, you, if then I confess with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and I believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, and I have called out to him to save me, the fact is, if you do that, God has acted on you. God has graciously acted upon you. He has opened your blind eyes. He has softened your hardened heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you call out to him to save you, God has acted upon you. The light of the gospel has shone in and through your darkened heart and you have been born again and been made new to see Jesus. You have been saved. Verse 13. So now there's more questions. There's more questions. There's more back and forth. Verse 13 through 17. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I, and I washed and I see. 
Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. See, the Pharisees, they have a different question. How can you see? Who or what kind of person would perform such a work on the Sabbath? They debate whether a man sent from God would violate the Sabbath, while others say there is no way that a sinner could do such God-glorifying work. He must be the sent one. But then they pose the great question at the end, but what do you say since he opened your eyes? So who does the Christian say that Jesus is? When the light of the gospel is shown in your heart, Jesus is more than a good teacher. He's more than a healer. He is the light of the world. He is the word made flesh. He is God with us and much, much more. He is our savior, our redeemer. He is our light. He becomes our very life. And then our life aim is what? To glorify God, to bring glory and praise to God. Verses 18 through 23, I'm not gonna read it, but the blind man's parents, they're afraid to confess that Jesus is the Christ because the Jews would put them out of the synagogue and this would be an end really to their public social life. See, the Jewish society was centered on the synagogue. And so to confess Jesus as the Christ would to be become an outcast among the people. So they say, he's grown, you go ask our son, he can answer for himself. And as I thought about this part of the passage, I, I had to ask myself, where, where is it? that you and I might shrink back from proclaiming the truth of the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Like if you're a student in school, do you shrink back from being a public Christian because you won't fit in? Do you turn a deaf ear when people publicly bash Christians, when they publicly bash God, when they publicly bash Christ? Do you defend Christ's honor knowing that you yourself will be rejected Matthew 10, tells us that whoever denies me before men, I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. But you see, for us who are born again, who the light of the gospel has shown the gift of God's grace and God's salvation have shown into our lives, those who have as their chief end to glorify God and to enjoy him forever will not deny Jesus. The glory of God is more important to those who have been illuminated to new life more important than fitting in. Is the glory of God more important than fitting in for you? Is the glory of God worth more than being accepted in social circles? Those are just questions to ponder. Verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. 
And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened me out, my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And then they cast him out. The Pharisees at first, they don't believe the blind man that he was really blind and that he was made to see. Uh, so they call him a second time, right? And as they call him this second time, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. The blind man's testimony is simple, isn't it? I was blind. Now I see. The testimony of the believer that glorifies God knows something, though. They know their prior condition. They know the condition in which they were saved from. I know this. I was blind, but now I see. The God-glorifying testimony of the gospel says, I was in utter darkness with no hope of redeeming myself. I was spiritually blind, and I was completely bankrupt before God. But now, by grace, I have been set free by the power of Jesus' atoning death for me. My bankrupt condition has been eradicated, not by my own righteousness, but by a righteousness deposited by God through Jesus Christ's perfect obedience in my stead. The God-glorifying gospel is the gospel of grace, unmerited, unearned personal favor from God. As I thought about this passage, I couldn't help but think about the words to amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And get this, the glory of God's grace, even in this song. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us, brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. This is the God-glorifying gospel, the good news, that by God's grace I can see. One thing I do know, I know I was a wretch, and now I see. I once knew nothing of God, and now I know him personally. I once saw nothing but darkness all around me, and now I see light. I was once hopeless, and now I have hope. That's all I know. That's what I know. The, the born-again Christian knows their position. They know what they were saved from. They know that it was no goodness in them that they now can celebrate. They're celebrating God's grace and His glory and His goodness toward them. Verse 27. He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become His disciples? And they reviled Him. You are His disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. 
Oh, such an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet this man opened my eyes. I told you once that my eyes were opened by grace through Jesus Christ, and you wouldn't listen. If I tell you again, will you believe and follow him? And then he, and then he, and then he strikingly says, God listens to those who worship him and obey according to his will. God has bestowed great grace upon me. So of course this Jesus is sent from God. That's the conclusion that he comes to. Of course he was sent from God. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Of course he was sent from God. They reply to him, well, you were born in utter sin. And then they cast him out. I wonder this. This is not in the scripture. so, But I wonder if the parting answer or maybe the parting thought on this blind man who is restored, as they said, you were born in utter sin and you try to teach us and then they cast him out. I wonder if he, he said this in his mind or if he thought it. You know, you're right. I was born in utter sin. Such amazing grace has never been heard of before. I was born in utter sin. Such amazing grace has never been heard of before. Praise be to God. I wonder if that was his fleeting thought as they kicked him out. Because he says, this I know, I was blind, and now I see. You say I was born in utter sin? I think, I think uh, the born-again Christian knows that very, very truth. I was born an utter sinner, a wretch, hopeless and helpless. Now I see and I believe. Praise be to God. Notice the Jews are once again claiming an allegiance to another that was sent by God. Uh, you might recall the Hebrews have this consistent disobedience to even that which Moses brought to them from God, and yet they're saying we are disciples of Moses. Well, being a disciple means that you obey the one that is discipling you. You, you obey the teacher. We know Moses, this man we don't. What they missed was the fact that Moses could not atone for their sin. Moses could not, through his own obedience, make them whole. To this, they were blind. Again, the man born blind. He opened my eyes by God's grace. God sent him, and I believe. Are there allegiances that hold you back from following Jesus? Some, some of you are probably the first in your family to believe in Jesus. A first-generation Christian. But does that allegiance to your family hold you back from following him? You know, we McKinnises, maybe we might say in previous years, generations past, we don't, we don't believe in the crutch of no Christianity. My, one of my uncles told me that. We're not weak-minded people. That Christianity is for people who need something to lean on because they're just not that smart. They're just not that strong. Maybe that holds you back, the allegiance to your family. 
holds you back from following after Jesus. Maybe you'll be the first in your family to break away and follow Jesus. As we look at verse 35, Jesus had heard that, that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, uh, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who may see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, Jesus follows up with the blind man, doesn't he? He, he follows up. Because you know how people had not been genuine, right? They had seen miracles and then they had followed and he had all these people going around. But Jesus is not concerned with the big crowd. Jesus is concerned with genuine faith, genuine believing faith, right? So he follows up. He goes to see this blind man and asks if he believes essentially saying, do you believe that I was sent from God? Or do you only rejoice in the healing? The Pharisees finally ask a really good question in this passage, don't they? Are we also blind? Are we also blind? You who think you see, you see so much that isn't true. It reminded me, as I was reading this passage of Ronald Reagan's statement, right? Talking about his, his political opponents. It's not that those people are stupid, he says, his opponents. It's just that they know so much that isn't true. They know a lot about things that aren't true. And here we have these Pharisees. Not that they're dumb men. They just know so much that isn't true. When the light of the gospel shines on the hearts of men, it goes one of two ways, doesn't it? It either illuminates the soul to make them the spiritually blind see, or it is a blinding light that the arrogant can't stand. The light of the gospel goes one of two ways. It's what Jesus says here. I came to shine the light of the gospel, the good news. If you see it, it'll illuminate your soul and change your life and save you to the glory of my Father. But this light is also a blinding light, and the arrogant of heart cannot withstand it. Have you felt in your life as though the light of the gospel has grown dim sometimes in these troubling days? Do you desire to see the brightness of the glory of God once again in your life? What do you do when the light seems like a long ago passion and you feel like this heavy weight of darkness? I don't know about you guys, but it can feel pretty heavy and pretty dark in this world that we are navigating. What do you do when the light of the gospel, when the light of Jesus Christ and the passion that you had for it seems to have faded and you seem to be in the shadows and you feel the heavy weight of darkness? James 4, 8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. See, seek him. Seek him through devotional scripture reading. Search yourself for mixed allegiances. Ask yourself whether you have mistakenly glorified things or yourself above God. 
I say search the scriptures and recall and remember all the promises that God has for you in Christ Jesus. John Piper says this very succinctly in only a way he can. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Where are we finding satisfaction? Well, if we're finding it anywhere else, it's absent, right? The glory of God and the fullness of joy are both uh, hand in hand. And I would say this, that if you're feeling gloomy and you're feeling the weight of darkness, gather with your brothers and sisters in fellowship around the word constantly and consistently. Take in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ at the table of communion consistently. Because the word promises, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Let us take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word and let it have its full effect in us this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would walk in the light of the gospel that we would partner with you in manifesting your glory while it is still day, Lord. But we need your enabling grace to continue in that, to be steadfast. Supernaturally help us to draw near to you. Help us to trust that you will draw near to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.